Okay, I'm here with Maggie Dunn. Maggie and her husband Jason founded House of Providence in Oxford, Michigan. Maggie, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you guys do? Certainly. We are House of Providence, and we were established in 2012 as a sort of to provide an answer to the um, extreme number of kids who were languishing in Michigan's child welfare system and those who were deemed perhaps unadoptable, unable to find placement because they had um, pretty severe maladaptive responses to their trauma. And so we wanted to create a place that could provide holistic care where the standard was high and the efficacy of our clinical interventions was also high. And so it is a holistic environment where we treat the child in every facet. They are so multi-layered and so spiritual, um, educational, their mental health, behavioral health, health relationship, all of those things. And so um, that's what we do. And we take the kids who really are coming straight out of maybe psychiatric hospital living, um, out of trafficking, child trafficking, those kind of things. So really, really um, tough cases, kids who are unable to assimilate into the community just because of their inability to keep themselves and others safe. So um, through the treatment that they receive here, um, they begin to um, heal and get well and become more multidimensional and stronger as a human, ego strength, spiritual strength, all of those kind of things. And they are able to then assimilate back into the community through permanency of a family. Sometimes that's family of origin. More often than not, though, it is adoption. Um, and so it's something that um, we have found is um, there's just been great effectiveness. We have a lot of empirical data to back up our programming and what we do, which has been an exciting thing that we've done within the past five years is really data collection to support what we say anecdotally. Um, but through what we've done, we have seen the gaps chasms maybe would be a better word, educationally, that the children in foster care who are just trying to survive, maybe not complete a suicide, maybe um, decrease their violence, um, lay down some of those maladaptive survival skills, they just don't have time or the luxury or are even afforded a good education. And so they perpetuate the cycle of child welfare involvement because of poverty. And then things just continue to get worse and worse. And so part of the stick that needs to go in the spokes, if you will, is to help with the education. And we found a really trauma-informed way to do that. And it has worked with the kids that we have served here. So uh, that's kind of the long way around the mountain to say that is why we applied for the grant for Providence Academy, because we think that if we offer that more broadly to kids who maybe are in a forever family or have been reunified, but still have a ton of that trauma that's not been sufficiently um, treated, if you will. I think trauma processing is lifelong, but there's certainly treatment that kids can get to stabilize we want to offer education that works, that we have the data to back up a little more broadly. Awesome. So, and you are, you and your husband, Jason founded it. Is that right? Do yes. I have that right? Yep. Tell, tell me a little bit more about, about that experience. So we have been together almost 30 years, about 27, almost 28 of those we have been involved in foster care. 
as foster parents and now adoptive parents. So we have eight kids. We have two biological and six adopted and many more that we fostered. And through fostering just saw the really ugly corners of the child welfare system where kids are truly suffering. And unfortunately, a lot of these facilities, um, I mean, we wouldn't, our, our uh, maybe humane societies look like the Taj Mahal compared to where we're relegating some of these children to in our society. And it's just really unconscionable. And for us, we couldn't look away. And we realized that having learned of this and seen it now it required something of us we couldn't just like oh that's a bummer and walk away we we knew that as action-oriented people that we had to do something and so that's sort of the impetus where house of providence began to percolate and develop and was born out of that and so that's where we um both quit our jobs me as a therapist he was a uh, lead pastor. We were pastoring a church and we both um, just took that step of faith and, and stepped down from our jobs and really launched into this with everything we had. Very cool. So our uh, our foundation, our, our mission is essentially James uh, 127 to care for orphans and widows. Um, can you t- and this is a pretty clear interaction with those things, but can you tell us a little bit about how how your faith informs what you do or how how faith interacts with your programs? I know that you know, you always want to be able to cast a wide net and make sure you can connect with community and those sorts of things. So what does that interaction look like for you guys? Yeah, I think in so many ways, I think there are several pillars from scripture that really inform our care, which is number one, do unto others as you would have done to yourself. And very practically for Jay and I, I won't hire someone that I wouldn't leave my child with now grandchild. Like if I won't leave my kid with you, I'm not going to leave somebody else's kid with you. And so we really have a standard of excellence that says, if my child needed this place, I have to feel comfortable leaving them here if I'm going to make other kids live here. So do unto others. We believe that on our hardest day, when we're dealing with maybe an eight-year-old who cannot see a way forward and wants to be dead, love never fails. I might not know every clinical modality of what to do, although we do operate in best practice, but some days you're like, I just don't know how to help this baby girl. Love never fails. I'm going to love you safely through this Tuesday and get you through another day. And so those two, and then I would say we really train our staff on Micah 6, 8 of you have to love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly. And I think it can't be all mercy. It can't be all justice. And to have those both meshed well, we have to be humble and not think we're this sort of great hope and we're going to fix everyone. No, we have to walk in kinship and say, I just want to walk with you in this this difficult time. And then finally, I would say um, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone, is that he demonstrates his love towards us And that is what compels us. And I think for the kids, we don't sit there. Yes, we do devos every night over dinner and we do all those things, but they're optional for the kids. And if the gospel isn't compelling, we've got it wrong. And so we know that so many of these kids, um, it's, it's a really beautiful portion of writing from Anne of Green Gables, where Marilla says that the reason that Anne can't tolerate church or believe in going to any, because she has never experienced the unconditional love of God through the medium of human love. And I cannot expect these kids to hear what I'm saying about Jesus if I don't show them how he really feels about them by the way I treat him as evidenced by the fact that I know him. 
And so we think it thrusts itself more potently when you organically bring that love. And then they're like, there's something different here that that gives you a platform. You don't demand a platform from children in trauma. And it's been so, so powerful. And we actually have um, two current staff members right now who were uh, came through our program, broken, barely making it through life, little girls. And now they're adult women who are serving on our team in some of the most effective ways we've ever seen. And that is like the stamp of approval that I could have never even dreamt of. But hey, I lived here and I went through this and I believe so much in what it did for me and how I know Jesus now. I want to help more kids who were where I was. As you're, as you're sharing that, that's amazing. I, I'm, I was struck by the, you've been doing it for a while and you're still so passionate about it. And I, <laughs> I'm wondering what the, um, you know, that what that experience is like, what, what keeps you passionate about it? What keeps you from burning out and, um, and continuing forward? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of hard days, right? Oh yeah. Most days are very, very hard. It's definitely not glamorous and it's deep end of the pool. I tell people I got my first left hook at House of Providence. I was like, whoa, <laughs> oh, those are stars. Okay. Um, I could give you all of sort of the appropriate clinical answers that are true, like proper self-care and Sabbath and margin and time off and all those things. And they're true. But I think what keeps my passion so alive is that I refuse to not be proximate to the children as the clinical director and the founder. And I could be at all these meetings and Lansing and doing all these advocacy things. But at the end of the day, I just want to sit with little 10 year old. I'm not going to say the names because of HIPAA, but I sit with that little one who just is, you know, maybe growing out of her overalls that she loves so much. And let's run up to the gap and get you a new pair. Like you can't sit with the broken unless you're a sociopath Mm -hmm. and not be, lit up by miracles and being so compelled to keep going. It's hmm. great. What, what is your, um, what does your husband's day-to-day look like? So as our um, CEO, he handles all of operations with a, an anointing that I don't have, but he handles all of that. Our budget, we're a debt-free organization. That's really important to him. Um, he handles, um, So all that comes with that policy, that kind of thing. He also is our biggest um, crisis response trainer. So for example, right now, he's not in this meeting because we have some onboarding. And so he spends an entire day with our onboarded people just talking about crisis and how to respond to a kid in crisis in a way that does no harm. And so he stays really proximate in that. He also is involved when they're in basketball and Mm -hmm. taking them to get their shoes and just such a paternal father mantle role outside of just making sure that we are good stewards and running as lean as possible without being, um, without sacrificing generosity to our people and our kids, but still being lean. And that's such a, a delicate balance. Yeah. 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 And then, so your day to day, I'm just, I, whenever spouses run something together, I'm always so intrigued by how the, they fit together. Right. Yeah. And um, I think the beautiful thing about Jay is that he leads me because that's the way the Lord ordained the family, not because he thinks I'm not competent. And that gives me such wings as a wife to like operate in my lane. And I love that. And so we know our lanes 
he would be all operations and I'm all like the human service side of it. And so the advocacy, the court, the social work, the training, our staff to, you know, have those clinical and appropriate responses and that kind of thing. So my day-to-day looks a lot more advocacy and, um, you know, just technical assistance to our staff as they're advocating in courts or wherever, that kind of thing. Being with the girls, I just got a text before this that one of our girls who's really struggling with some parental stuff, a mom that's really not showing up for her. And it's kind of the weight of it is on her right now that she really is saying, I really don't want to be alive anymore. So now after this, I'm going to jump in and just spend some time loving on her in some sensory rich ways. So it's, it's like, I, I, I feel like I'm that, um, constantly I like I zoom into micro and then I'm out to macro micro yeah. macro yeah, yeah yeah it can be a little dizzying but that's what it's I do all, it's also probably um energizing right to be able yeah. to be in between those spaces that you care about um so th- just help and paint a little bit of a picture and I won't take much more of your time but a little bit of a picture of of what a day-to-day looks like so how much staff is around how many how many kids um, are in your care at any given time? Those sorts of things. Yeah, so we have um, four direct care staff per each shift that work right with the girls. And so that's our AM, our PM. And then we have one person that's here up and awake and doing things you know, throughout the midnight so that there's a staff right there all night. Um, we have, um, per our contract with the state, we are a mental health behavioral stabilization program. So we have certain clinical requirements. We have to have a registered nurse on. We have to have um, certain, you know, mental health clinicians that are on. There's a lot of state requirements that we have to carry. And so we carry all of those. Um, and then we have, of course, our HR and finance and and those types of administrative. We're, we run about 16% admin and the rest is direct for the kids that we service. Um, we have, with, with the girls here at our residential, we um, have eight girls and that's what we run at at a time. And then um, with the school, we will be launching with 40 kids. Well. Wow. Um, the school's launching is the, the plan to launch in the fall? 2024 fall. Yep. Well, are there organizations that you partner with closely, um, that just that we might have already heard of, or, you know, just things that help us round out the picture of what you guys do. I know obviously, um, working with the state directly a lot and, um, and, and foster care uh, services, right. But outside of that, I would say we are, um, largely involved with other foster care agencies and work with them collaboratively as a multidisciplinary team towards adoptions and really finding and licensing families in the most efficient way possible so that kids aren't languishing. Um, We definitely work with um, some other therapeutic places in the area. We've done some equine therapy, those kinds of things. Um, Gosh, I wasn't even prepared for this question. So I'm trying to think what else in terms of school services. Um, gosh, not that I can really think of no, that's, off that's the great. Top of yeah, my th- head. those are those are good ones. Um, okay, can we end by can you just give us one, uh, just an anecdote that again helps paint the picture uh, for us of, of what what your what your work is really, really all about? Yeah. I would say, um, gosh, I, I'm trying to distill it down in my brain because there's so many that I could share with you. Um, I would say 
in the last year and a half, almost two years, we have my data here, um, 12 kids who have gone to permanency um, that wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's huge. Um, one specific girl came to us when she was um, nine, almost 10. She might have just turned 10. Um, and she had been trafficked by her parents for meth. And she went to school and um, they had a day where the firefighters came and the firefighter, and she's also cognitively impaired. And the firefighter said that we're helpers. And if there's ever an emergency, we will be there to help you and help, help, help. And they kept sharing this. And so she didn't know how else to get help, but that they would help me not be trafficked anymore um, for her parents to get money for meth. And so she set her house on fire so that the firemen would come and rescue her and help her. And they did. And she ended up because of that. I mean, she went through this, she was like five at the time. So she went through tons of institutional living because she was just very, very unsafe as in her choices. And eventually um, went to an out of state psych psychiatric facility and um, came to us and they really kind of pictured her as unadoptable. She couldn't sit through a school day. Uh, she was very, very violent to staff to keep her safe throughout a day. And now she's one of our leaders and she will be moving into an adoptive home probably in the early spring. And she is just thriving and soaring and healing and able to tolerate men being around her without being afraid. When she first came to us, we couldn't even do her hair. She would scream and say, I know why you're trying to make me pretty and you're not going to make money. She would use a Sharpie and put price tags on herself. And she's nearly unrecognizable now in such a good way. And she's whole and funny and supportive of other girls. And just, um, yeah, that's where the magic is, is just that slow, evolution of people just healing and coming back to themselves. There's a French poet that says, sometimes you have to reteach a thing, it's loveliness. And that's what we try to do with the girls here. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Maggie. Before we go, can I pray for you guys quickly? Please do. God, thank you so much for, for Maggie and for Jason and for House of Providence and all the good work that they're doing. And we pray, Lord, for your continued blessing on their ministry, Lord. Thank you so much for uh, just a small part that we get to play as well and the blessing it is for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I pray for you guys? Yeah, love that. Lord, I thank you for John and, and what you are putting in his hands to steward. And I just pray, God, that you would give wisdom. I pray that wherever they put these funds, that they would just be multiplied, God, like the loaves and the fish, and that people would use them to share your hope, your gospel, and just an alleviation of any suffering in whatever vein that they choose to put these monies. I pray that you would continue to bless them as they continue to steward well. Use this foundation, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate you taking the time and we have a meeting soon and we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks, Maggie.